Would you stand with me now as I read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? We're going to be in the first eight verses of this chapter together. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is life-giving truth, that we may walk in it and live that we may, as this text instructs, be able to please God to whom we are obedient servants because you have offered your saving grace to us, your redeemed. Let us do so more and more as we seek to live obedient lives of faith towards you. Challenge our hearts now. Help us to know your word and to live it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As many of you know, because so many of you <laughs> asked this morning, our family was on vacation this last week. I told you two weeks ago we were going on vacation. We had planned this trip and canceled it uh, four times. We finally got to uh, take it. We had a wonderful time um, where it's warm. My wife, that's always her thing. She just wants to go where it's warm. I want to go where I can have some stuff to do. And one of the things that we went to do that I've always wanted to do, we've taken several trips to the Caribbean, but we've, I've always wanted to do something we've never gotten to do. I've always wanted to go scuba diving. And uh, Christy is not going to go scuba diving with me. That, that was never a possibility. So I had to wait for one of my children to get old enough to be able to go. And we had finally reached that point. Now, we had done lots of water activities in the Caribbean. We've swim, swam with stingrays. We've been snorkeling. We've done glass bottom boats. Christy, even on our honeymoon, swam with a shark. Um, but I'd never been scuba diving. And so I, Brody and I, we were down in uh, uh, Roatan, an island off of Honduras. And there's good scuba diving there. Let's go. There's a beginner class you can take and you can go. They'll take you down there. It was fantastic. But here's what I learned about scuba diving is that you got to know some things or you're going to be in serious trouble. You know, when you go snorkeling, if you've ever been snorkeling somewhere, you go snorkeling, they don't tell you anything. They hand you some snorkels and a mask. They hand you some flippers and they go, well, just, you know, go right on out there. And, and you go right on out there and you see some things. Um, but when you go scuba diving, there's a class you have to take. So yes, I went on vacation and took a class. Like there's a class you have to take. You go there and sit because if you don't do this right, you're going to die. 
And, and here's, here's one, there's some very specific instructions that you need to know for how to breathe underwater, because we're not designed to breathe underwater, for how to communicate underwater, because we can't talk uh, uh, underwater, for how to survive, how to equalize the air bubbles in your head and in your lungs. There's things you have to know. There's instructions for very specific circumstances being underwater. It's very similar to this text that we come to today. Paul is still, an, an idea that was introduced last week, this idea of progressive sanctification. I appreciate Pastor Michael preaching. Listen to his sermon early this morning before uh, getting things together for mine. And he introduced, well, this idea of progressive sanctification, that we're continually loving and growing in faith together. Paul continues that idea here in this transition marked by that first word, finally then, brothers. But then he's going to give not only just a general call, which is where we're going to begin towards sanctification, but Paul's going to give some very specific instructions because he's writing to people living in a very specific circumstance. So we could think about the first part of this sermon that this general call to sanctification being like that of going scuba dive, just kind of go out in that direction and you're going to be okay. But then he's going to give some, 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 some snorkeling instructions to some scuba diving instructions, some, some really clear, this is the way you have to live because of the world around you. And here's what we need to hear. Because I recognize we live 2,000 years from here and we may think that was a very different time in a very different place and in many ways that it, it was. But over the last 60 years, our culture has progressed to the point where we share many commonalities with what we will see in the text today and many commonalities with the Gentile culture that these new Christians were living in in Thessalonica. I think we're going to see clear instructions that we need to hear today as we come to this text. Thinking about being sanctified in all things, knowing how we can be sanctified, not just in a general sense, but in some very specific ways. I always like to give this warning when I deal with this subject. I'm going to talk about sex today. I'm going to do so with tact, but I'm going to do so clearly from the scripture. If you have a young child in here, that you would rather not have an awkward conversation with on the way home. We have opportunities for them elsewhere. Don't allow your teenager or your older elementary kid to leave. They need to hear what I'm going to say today. Now, let's start with a general call to sanctification. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. As we'll see in the intro to the next verse, verse three, sanctification is God's will for all believers. The modern idea that someone can profess faith in Jesus but have no real life change would have been a foreign concept to the New Testament authors. It would have been a completely different idea and it is a completely different idea than the one introduced to us through Jesus and his apostles. When we experience past life change, remember this, this series title is Past, Present, and Future. 
When we experience past life change through the saving grace of Jesus brought about by the gift of faith in our life that we come alive in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are then new creations and new creations then live a certain way. You don't do so perfectly and you often don't do so right away because you don't even know what you're supposed to do. You need instruction. You need truth imparted to you. You need, the word that we use is discipleship. You need to be brought along in the faith. And this is what Paul recognizes here. Paul recognizes that these are brothers, that word that's translated brothers, I've told you, we've seen it before. It's brothers and sisters. It's the congregation. It's the people gathered. He's urging them to walk in a certain way because they are now, by calling them brothers, he's recognizing their true faith in Jesus. And he's saying, you're now supposed to walk some way. Not to, not to earn your place with God, because we could never do that. Not to make yourselves right with God, because we could never have hope in that. But because we are right with God, we then experience this call to walk in a certain way and to do what, how verse 1 ends, to do so more and more. That This is a progressive act that takes place in the life of a believer from the moment of salvation to the moment of their death. You've, you'll never arrive. We have relatively new believers in this room that probably think they'll never be fully like Jesus. Can I just, can I just encourage you? Hold on to that. Because <laughs> you're right. Like that's how we all need to believe. Because there are likely some people that have walked with Jesus for a long time that are kind of complacent where they sit. They think I'm as like Jesus as I really want to be. Repent of that today. And recognize that I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus and how long, you, how much you've become like him, you still have growth to do. Do so more and more for you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here appeals to Jesus. He makes an appeal to the teachings of Jesus to, to ensure that they understand that this isn't just his encouragement for them, but this was the teaching of Jesus. In John 17, a passage we've already considered on several occasions here in our study of 1 Thessalonians, we read this. Jesus is talking about his disciples to the Father, and he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, again, sanctification is this, is this ongoing process of putting off sin and putting on Jesus. It's this, what Paul's describing in verse 1, this walking and doing so more and more in a way that pleases God. Believers will be sanctified. It, it, is, it, it is an expectation of all who come to faith in Jesus. It is a progression that we go through, that when we come to faith and are justified, made right with God, we then begin to walk with him more and more. It's not an option, it is an expectation. And we are sanctified in a very specific way. In John 17, we see it, we're sanctified in the truth. This is why Paul said, you receive from us how you ought to walk that it wasn't just up for the Thessalonians to determine how they were going to walk. They weren't supposed to just figure it out for themselves. 
Paul appeals to his previous teachings, although short-lived in that city, and says, we told you what you're supposed to do. We've told you how you're supposed to walk. You've received from us how, how you ought to walk. You've received from us the truth. So that very truth that Jesus is saying, this is how you're sanctified in the truth. It's that same truth that Paul appeals to and says, we passed this on to you because the truth of God guides us towards his way in which we are sanctified. It's his way that we are to live. It's his way that we are to walk, not our own. And there are two reactions to that kind of teaching. One is a positive reaction. We hear the teaching that it is his truth and there's this positive almost relief because we're like, good, because I could never figure this out on my own, right? I would never be able to figure this out on, on my own. The other is kind of a negative reaction and it's a reaction of the flesh and it's this reaction. Well, I wanna live my life my way. And our culture has embraced that. And we're gonna see that even more clearly here when we get to Paul's specific example of sanctification, how our culture has embraced this idea of as long as you're true to yourself, as long as you're living life your way, doing things the way that you wanna do them, then, then that's, that's okay. That's not the way to sanctification, believer. The way to sanctification, the way to become like Jesus, to put off sin and to put on Christ is that we do so according to his truth guided by what he has told us to do, not to do. This is the way to sanctification. And this is a general call for all believers. Then Paul is going to switch and he's going to give a specific call to sanctified sexual conduct. Now again, there's been this general instruction and now because of their specific circumstance, Paul is going to give very specific instructions. He's going to give three commands followed by three reasons why they should follow these commands. Verses three, four, five, and the first part of six concern, show us the three commands concerning sanctified sexual conduct. We pick up in verse three, where it's again this kind of introduction for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So there can be no argument from someone who would say, well, I'm saved, but God doesn't expect me to live a certain way. Yes, he does. It's clear in the text, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Again, he's writing to believers. Every believer, the will of God is their sanctification. Now he's going to dive into very specific instructions for that. First, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Abstinence from sexual immorality is the first of the three commands, all of which deal with sanctified sexual conduct, but abstinence from sexual immorality, kind of a general blanket term, is the first of those commands. We must first ask this question, why is this the example of sanctification that Paul chooses for, the, for this church? Why this? Because there are other areas of our lives that we need to be sanctified. There are certainly areas of our speech that we need to be sanctified. There are areas of the way our minds work and the way that we think. There are areas of our work, which Paul deals with, has already dealt with and will deal with uh, later in these two letters. There are numerous areas of our lives we need to be sanctified. Why this? 
Why is this the specific instruction that he gives here at this moment? Well, we need to understand what's going on in two realms. First, what's going on in the blooming and blossoming church in the first century. And then we also need to understand what's going on in Thessalonica, a Greco-Roman city itself. So let's start with what's happening in the church. Paul at this point is on his second missionary journey. His first missionary journey saw the gospel spread, not widely, but spread to Gentiles and multiple places. And he returns to Israel and there begins to be this growing discussion of what are we going to do with these Gentiles that have come to faith? And there was one group of people that said, well, for them to actually be in the faith in Jesus, we need to make them Jews first. Because up at this point, everybody that was a Christian was a Jew. So we need to make them Jewish first. So they need to be circumcised. They need to follow the law. They need to follow the Sabbath. They need to do the things that we're doing because we're Jewish. And then they can come to faith in Jesus. But then you had Paul on the other side. Paul and his mission team are like, wait a second. Paul, again, Jew of Jew, who says, no, that's not what they need to do at all. That, that's, the, the gospel has replaced that, right? The gospel this new covenant found in Jesus is now for everyone. Somebody doesn't have to become Jewish to be a Christian. So they hold what is known as the Jerusalem Council. They get the apostles together, they get church leaders together, and they talk about it together. This is all recorded in Acts 15. And in Acts 15, they come to a consensus that Gentiles don't need to become Jews to become Christians. But there are certain instructions that they will need to follow. And we're given those instructions in Acts 15. Look with me in verses 28 and 29. For this is a letter that they are writing. So the Jewish, the Jerusalem council is writing a letter that's gonna be delivered to these new Gentile churches. And it says this, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So you don't have to do anything else Jewish, but we want you to do these things that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, so abstain from idolatry, and from blood, this is the, the eating of blood, and from what has been strangled, so all of this deals with idolatry and diet, and then they say this, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. This is not a long letter. Acts, it's actually a letter written that's recorded in Acts 15. It's very short, and it's basically saying these two things. No longer be idolaters and no longer embrace the sexual ethic that is known of Gentiles in their world. That's the instructions that they are given. So Paul then in Acts 16 begins his second missionary journey where he ends up meeting these, this, these people who convert to Christianity in Thessalonica later, some months later, he's writing back this letter to them. So fresh in his mind, maybe within as little as, a year and a half or a two year period. Fresh in his mind is the instruction from the Jerusalem council to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, so that's what's happening in the church, what's happening in the world. We have to understand that sexual immorality as viewed through a biblical sexual ethic was rampant in Greco-Roman culture. When Paul says to abstain from sexual immorality, the Greek word there is the word pornea, where we get our word pornography, from. And when Paul says to abstain from that, what he's describing, what one commentator defines this as, is that word that's translated in the ESV text, sexual immorality, meant any kind of sexual relation outside of heterosexual marriage, whether it is fornication, 
adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, bestiality. These are all perversions of the biblical sexual ethic. And these things ran rampant in Roman culture. It was actually expected that men would be unfaithful to their wives. In first century culture, women were actually encouraged to just not ask questions. It was part of many uh, pagan rituals in worship to have sex outside of marriage. And this isn't only heterosexual sex. There were homosexual sex, including sex with children and animals. This stuff was rampant in Roman culture. And so Paul is, is dealing with people who have lived their entire lives in this. They've never been told anything else. They've actually been told that that kind of sexual activity was good and honored by pagan gods. So you have, you have this Jewish Christian idea of sex, which is completely foreign to the Greco-Roman understanding of sex, and now these Gentiles have converted to Christianity and Paul needs an example for how to walk in sanctification. And the best example is the change that is brought about in their lives by, by the saving power of Jesus and is demonstrated in embracing what the Bible has to say about sexual conduct, not what the world and their world was, had gone crazy like ours, their world had gone crazy in this and, and it was embraced in the culture. And so Paul uses that as an opportunity and his first instruction is this, abstain. Don't do what the world is doing. Just because the world says it's okay, just because the world has even embraced it, just because the world has made it a part of a religious ritual, just because the world has said, look, you're just going to do what you're going to do and everybody's going to be okay with it. Listen, just because the world has said that doesn't mean you should do it because you're now something new and you're supposed to walk in a new way. And this, my friends, was written 2,000 years ago. And you see how, how applicable this is today as we look around in our world and we see all of the things people are doing. And the way that these things are finding their way into Christian homes and Christian minds and Christian eyes and, and people even within Christian churches are beginning to change our understanding of sexual ethic because we think the world's way makes sense. Well, the world's way seemed to have likely made sense to the Thessalonians who had been raised in it. And Paul says, abstain from that. And he gives the second command in verses four and five. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of, the, of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So his second command is to be sexually self-controlled. Paul says, know how to control your own body. He gives two ways that we control it, in holiness and honor. Holiness means that we're controlling it in a way that is right in the eyes of God. Honor is a way that, sh that shows that we are doing what God would want us to do. Not in the contrasted, not in the passions of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
Now, Peter's going to write in his uh, two letters to the church, he's going to write into a similar uh, Roman city, not the same Roman city, but similar Roman cities that embrace similar sexual ethic. And he's going to say very similar things in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Self-control, this idea that's presented by the New Testament writers as being able to control oneself is regularly contrasted with the former way of life, the way other people outside of the faith, particularly in these Gentile cities, lived, that they were unable to control themselves because they still lived by the passions of their flesh. Self-control contrasts those being saved from those living according to the passion of their flesh. Christians are supposed to live self-controlled lives because we are now new creations and different and we're no longer what we used to be. Paul's inclusion of self-control here introduces an, introduces an interesting aspect of sanctification. And that's this. We contribute, we have a role to play in our own sanctification. Now let me make something abundantly clear. We have no role to play in our justification. You couldn't save yourself no, no matter how hard you try. Outside of the work of Jesus Christ alone on the cross and the gift of faith that God gives to those who believe, we would all be doomed to death and hell. But when we're made alive, God then gives us the tools that we need, the instructions that we need, the truth that we need to begin living obedient lives to him. We don't do this all on our own. And Paul's gonna introduce a helper to us in his next point. But know this, you have a role to play in your sanctification. Sanctification is not just you sitting back saying, okay, I'm gonna be a little more like Jesus today and not actually controlling your actions and controlling your thoughts and controlling your mind and controlling what you put into your mind. We have a role to play. And a big part of that is learning to actually be self-controlled. Next, the beginning of verse six, that no one transgress, the wrong, transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The third thing is don't allow sexual sin inside the community of faith. Here's one of the things that I think we often gloss over when we read the New Testament. And that is sexual sin within the congregation of faith was more common than we probably wanna think it was. It was common in Corinth. There were actually some very specific things that were happening in Corinth that Paul had to name names. It was obviously at least somewhat happening here in Thessalonica. It was happening in the churches that Peter writes to. There, that it's a very common idea that was having to be addressed because the world's understanding of right sexual conduct was so foreign from what God had already established as being right. So the New Testament authors are regularly having to address this because it's likely even happening within the congregation. Paul says, let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was, but it was likely, I think most scholars would agree, it was likely something that was at least a possibility or even an ongoing action between church members. So the warning here is clear. We cannot allow this within the congregation. You see, sexual relation with another man's wife 
was the only condemnable sexual act in that culture. You know, it was actually against the law in Roman culture. To sleep with another man's wife was against the law. You could literally do anything else you wanted to do. And it was embraced by the culture. But you couldn't do that. And Paul could have appealed to the law, the Roman law. He could have appealed to right and wrong within the culture. But that's not what he does. The appeal Paul makes here is that sexual relations... Not because sexual relations within the church with people who are not your spouse is wrong, not because the Romans say it's wrong, but because sexual sin within a community breaks the fellowship of the community. Abounding love within the community of the church, which was called for the previous passage that Michael preached last week, is impossible to practice if brothers and sisters are sinning against one another in this way. And so his final command here is do not allow this to become something that is breaking fellowship. That when you go back and live according to the passions of your flesh and do things like you did when you were a Gentile sinner who did not know God and did not know better, when you allow that into the church, it breaks the fellowship of the church. Now, at the second part of verse 6 through 8, where Paul gives three reasons for practicing sanctified sexual conduct. The first is because God is a judge, a righteous and holy judge. He says, because, right, don't do this, no. because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is not a popular idea in our culture. It was in theirs, by the way. Even, even in the pagan culture side, this, this idea of the gods, because there would have been in their ideas, in their minds, multiple gods with multiple temples, the idea that, that the gods would punish those who do wrong was, was widespread. Not today. If, if people outside of the Christian faith uh, who have some sort of westernized understanding of God, uh, think about God. They always like to think about God in some type of positive light. They would never call God an avenger unless that which God is avenging is something that is despicable to them. But notice what God avenges here. God avenges that which is not despicable to us or to our culture. God avenges that which is despicable to him. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 says, let marriage be held in honor among you and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Church, let me be clear. While the sexual revolution of the last 60 years has seen a progressive increase towards the sexual depravity like that seen in Paul's day, make no mistake, God will judge. The UBU and love is love message of our world is deadly because God is the final arbiter. He is the final judge. He is the one who avenges right and wrong. And here's the good news of that. The good news of that means I don't have to stand in judgment over our culture. I don't have to hand ring over the progression of our culture towards a pagan ungodly sexual ethic. All we have to do is say, this is what God says. This is, this is what God expects of us. 
And we apply these things to our lives, trusting this, that God, who has told us who he is, and who has told us what he will do, that he will do that very thing, and that he will judge according not to our culture standards, not to our world standards, but to his standard of holiness alone. So why should the church of God embrace a biblical sexual ethic? Here's why. First off, because God will judge. And we should stand in awe of the fact that God will judge. The second is because God has called us to holiness. Look at verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So it's not only the awe of righteous judge God which is a real thing and we need to understand that today, but it is also because we should embrace a sanctified sexual ethic because God has called us to something greater. When he saved us and redeemed us, he set before us the goal of his holiness. He is the one who has set the mark and this holiness should extend to every area of our lives. We don't get to decide what qualifies as holy. God does. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter continues and he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God has not called us for impurity. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. God has not called you from darkness to life so you'll continue to live in darkness. God has not taken your heart of stone and made it into a heart of flesh so that you'll continue to live as one with a heart of stone. God has removed the blinders from your eyes so that you can see the beauty of his gospel and the goal of Christ-likeness. And that is what he has called you to. There's some Christians who have believed the lie that God doesn't expect much from them, that maybe they're not very talented, maybe they don't feel like they're very gifted, maybe they don't feel like they have very much to offer, and so they're just complacent because they don't feel like these gradual steps are really going to get them anywhere. If that's you this morning, let me encourage you something. God has called you to just as much holiness as he has called every other believer who has ever lived. He has called us to holiness just as he called Paul and Peter and the other apostles to holiness. God has called us to holiness like he called the church fathers to holiness. He called us to holiness like he called the reformers to holiness. He called you to holiness just as he called the elders of this church to holiness. God has called all of us in Christ to holiness, not to impurity, Not to be left as we are, but to something greater, something that is like him. The third is that God has given us the help we need to do it. Verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let me just stress that first part really quickly. I realize what I'm saying is not popular. I realize that what I'm saying we're putting out on the internet, and the one time we've I think ever been censored, it was over this subject on one of our streaming platforms. And if that happens again, so be it. Somebody shares this with somebody and they get mad at me and they send an an email calling me, I don't care, that's fine, okay? Because this is what I rest on, you ready? 
I rest on this. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. You don't got to listen to me. (laughs) I'm not the one telling you this, okay? All I'm trying to do is be really clear with what God has said, okay? And then, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And if God has given his Holy Spirit to you, here's what he's done. He's given you all the help you need to live this kind of sanctified sexual life. He's given you all the help you need to live sanctified in every area of your life. This is just the example that the Holy Spirit is the one who allows us to go back to self-control. He's the one who allows us to practice self-control because self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And if we have the Spirit in us, we're able to do these things because he is the help that we need in life to progress through towards holiness in Christ. But we also must recognize this, that because he has been given to us, he has given us the Holy Spirit, that we are now his temple. Paul writes to another church in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here are the instructions of Scripture. The Holy Spirit makes you able to live a sanctified life. But we live a sanctified life because we've been given the Holy Spirit. You see how these two things work together? You're given the Holy Spirit to help you live sanctified, but you live sanctified because you've been given the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. So what? Through the Lord's power and guidance of his word, we can experience sanctification in every area of our lives, including our sexual conduct. Yes, this has been a sermon about sanctified sexual conduct. But it's a bigger sermon than that. It's a sermon that reaches into every area of our lives and says no matter what worldly passion and worldly way we're still holding on to, it is time to let it go, my friend. Because God has made you able to let it go. God has given you his Holy Spirit. God has given you his word so you'll know how to walk. God in his power makes you able to live a holy life pleasing unto him, even something as private and personal and also as culturally perverse as sexual conduct. Listen to Paul's instructions to the church in Colossae. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing in him, Really pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to start at the bottom of that passage and quickly work our way up as we conclude. First, verse 14, in him, in Jesus, whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Know this, there is no justification outside of Jesus Christ. 
If you're a guest with us today, if you're someone seeking the things of God, maybe you've just stumbled upon us online and you're hearing this and you think that there is any other way to be right with God other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus applied to your life, know this, you are on a fool's errand. You have believed a lie. There is but one way for man to be saved, and that is through Jesus. And Jesus alone offers forgiveness of our sin. That is our past justification. For you today, that can be your moment of justification, coming to faith in Jesus. We back up a couple of verses and we see this, we're no longer in darkness. He has delivered us from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Those who are no longer in darkness are now in what? The light. We now see things differently. We now see our world differently. We now see, we now see sin and holiness differently. We now see other people differently because we are no longer what we once were. We have been made new. We've been made into something else. Then we back up further into the into those verses, verses nine through 11, here's the argument that Paul makes. Walk that way. Paul begins at the end and works his way backwards. So by walking backwards through the text, we begin at the beginning and work our way forward. You're saved through the power of Jesus. When you're saved through the power of Jesus, you're brought from darkness into light. And when you're brought from darkness into light, you then have the ability to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So we should walk in that way. Church, I encourage you. Maybe this sermon today and you think, I've never struggled with that kind of understanding of sexual sin. That's never been the, the temptation for me. But something else is. And whatever that something else is, know this. Today is the day for you to say, God, I'm going to give this to you and I'm going to trust your Holy Spirit to give me the self-control to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, your calling that has called me to holiness. Maybe sexual sin is that thing for you. Maybe you've embraced the thinking of this world or maybe you've embraced just the proliferation of sexual images and videos at, 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 at the touch of a finger. Maybe you've embraced even darker sexual sin. Know this today. There is nothing, there is nothing that the Lord cannot overcome in your life. And you can find freedom in that. Not because you can somehow muster the will and the courage to do it on your own. You've probably tried on your own and failed over and over. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can finally be free. Be free, my friend. Walk in self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit, relying on him with the gospel as your foundation, knowing this, that God has called each and every one of us in Christ towards his holiness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the radical salvation that so many here have experienced, that we can know you because you came in flesh to take our sin on the cross. But we're also grateful, God, that you didn't leave us in darkness and the ways of this world, but you have called us to something greater. You've called us to imitate your son who demonstrates for us true holiness. I pray, God, that you would help us be those kind of people that will walk in that way because sanctification is the will of God for our lives.
I pray, God, that you would set brothers and sisters in this room free from the burden of sexual sin. That you would set brothers and sisters free from the burden of other sin. Maybe not this specific one, but this, this burden that they've held on to for far too long. Then walk in a manner worthy of that calling towards holiness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.